It's been said that every quilt tells a story, and it's so true. But I also believe every quilter has a story to tell. I wanted to hear about the people behind these wonderful quilts and thought you'd enjoy hearing about their lives also. Welcome to A Quilter's Life. Beth Upstill is the owner of West Coast Wool. Who knew that dyed wool could be made with so many beautiful colors? She focuses on a brighter color palette, which she offers on her website, along with patterns, unique notions, and many other wonderful items. Besides dyeing wool, Beth teaches wool applique workshops at local shops. Thanks to Linda Williams for sending Beth to share with us on A Quilter's Life. Beth, I am so happy that you are on A Quilter's Life and we get to visit today. It is my pleasure to talk to you. I'm really excited to have a good conversation with you today. I'm so looking forward to it. Me too. Now, when you signed up, you mentioned that Linda Williams made you do it. (laughs) Tell me about that. Linda is a friend of mine. Before retiring, she owned a quilt store called The Nimble Thimble in Gilroy, California. And as soon as she bought the shop, I immediately went into her shop and said, I want to teach in here. And we've been friends ever since. And we were on a quilt retreat, the wool applique retreat that I host every year. And we were just sitting at a table and she said that I needed to contact you and be on your podcast. And I looked at her and I'm like, no, (laughs) I'm too nervous for that kind of thing. But Linda, she has a way about her. She just said, you need to do this. Not would you, or you think about it. She just said, you need to do this. So that's kind of how it came about. And I feel like maybe I've listened to your podcast before. I listen to a lot of podcasts while I'm working on Spotify or whatever. And I feel like I've heard your voice before. Well, maybe you listened to the episode where I got to visit with Linda. She was a lot of fun. I might have. She's one of the nicest, most generous people you will ever meet. There's not many people like that out in the world, but Linda, she'll do anything for you. And she's been a very good friend to me. I have been wondering if she ever got a guild started or something going in the community that she was thinking about doing when we chatted? I don't know. I don't think she has. Once she retired and closed her store, she's had more time for herself that she's never had before. But nope. But she did come to my retreat, so I was very excited about that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks, Linda. I know you're listening in. Thank you for sending Beth my way. Beth, let's jump back to where were you born and raised? I was born in Dearborn, Michigan. And I've moved around quite a few places. So I think we moved to Florida when I was about seven. But I actually grew up in Stone Mountain, Georgia. That's where I went to high school. That's where I graduated from high school. So I would say I grew up in Georgia. Do you have a favorite memory there? I have a childhood memory that I thought about when I was 
thinking about you know, some of your questions. So not a favorite memory necessarily from Georgia, but I do have a very favorite childhood memory. And that is sitting at my grandma's kitchen table eating cinnamon toast when we were kids. And she made the best cinnamon toast ever. And my kids would refer to her as the cinnamon toast grandma, which is, I'll never forget that. That's a really good childhood memory for me. I'm just picturing that. Now, did she do it where you put it all together and put it under the broiler? Yes. How did you know that? Because <laughs> that's the best way to make it. <laughs> it is the best way to have cinnamon toast. I mean, I loved it. My sister, my brother, my cousins. And when my kids were little, a few times that they went up to Michigan, that's what they remember of her. They don't remember a lot because they were really young, but that's the memory they have, which is incredible. Just thinking about it, can't you smell it? I know. I'm like, I might have to go have a piece of cinnamon toast later. <laughs> Tell about your employment over the years. I've had a lot of jobs in my lifetime. I would say more professional. Some of them were, I was a roller skating waitress at one time. I used to love to roller skate when I was younger, but I did do a roller skating waitress job. That was an experience. And then most recently, a commercial property manager that I did, probably the worst job in the world on the planet. But those were not really what I would consider like creative jobs, like where you get to use your creativity every day until I owned my own business. And that's kind of what changed things a bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I did work in our local quilt store when I first moved to California. I had little kids at the time and I just wanted like a day out. And a woman had started a little quilt store and it was in a house and it was only like three rooms. And I went in there one day and just said, hey, if you ever need a Saturday off, I'm your person. And eventually I worked on Saturdays and I cut fabric and I got to work in the quilt store, which is always a lot of fun. That was kind of like the start of really doing a lot of quilting was working in that shop. Is that the same area of California that you moved to? Is that where you live now? Yes. So I live in Morgan Hill, California. I moved probably about 20-ish years ago from Texas. So I've lived in many places. Even though I grew up in Georgia, I moved to Texas. And that's where I met my husband. And then we moved out to California. And we've landed here in Morgan Hill. It sounds in your life you made a huge circle around the United States. Sort of like a straight line out west, it seemed like. <laughs> you know, eventually it was from one coast to the next. And we raised our kids here. Is there anything you wanted to share about your family? Well, I am married to my husband, obviously. I have two girls. They're adults now. They've graduated from college and live in their own lives. Uh, I have one daughter that lives in Campbell, 
And my other daughter lives in Reno, Nevada. She moved back there after she graduated college because she likes it out there. And I try to encourage them to be creative. They both know how to use a sewing machine. They're too busy to be that creative. I think when you're in your 20s, you're trying to make your way in the world. You don't have time to have stitching hobbies. But one day they're going to come back to me. So I've been collecting sewing machines so that one day, one of those girls is going to say, Mom, I need to make something and I need a sewing machine. And I'll just quietly go into the closet and pull one out for them and say, here you go. So I know they're going to come back someday and they'll be creative. That's going to be a fun day. Yes, because when they were little, they sewed and my youngest, she used to knit. They took sewing lessons and every summer we would do a summer project where we'd stitch a bag, you know, they'd make a kid's backpack or something. And we always did something in the summer. And then by the time they hit middle school, it wasn't as cool to be sitting in a sewing machine with your mom. But we used to always do something creative. And I want them to at least have the skill to grab a sewing machine and make something if they need to. If you had the opportunity to talk to your great, 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 great grandchildren, what would you want them to know? I would want them to know how much I've waited to be a grandma or a great grandma or a great, great grandma. I cannot wait for that day. I'm not in a hurry necessarily, but I. I'm so looking forward to being the fun grandma. My grandmother, my mother's mother, was the fun grandma. We always had a good time when we went to her house. She was creative. She sewed all of her clothes. My mom is a very creative person. She is the fun grandma to my kids. And I just can't wait to be that. And I would like to have that opportunity. Besides quilting, are there other crafts that you do or have done in the past? Well, Paula, let me tell you something. I am an equal opportunity crafter. (laughs) (laughs) I love to make things and do things. I can say with all honesty that I am never, ever bored because I always have something on the go. And I say that because I've come across people in my world who have said on occasions, I'm bored. Well, I'm never bored, ever. I might have too much going on, but I'm never, ever bored. And I say that because I like to do lots of things. Besides being a quilter, I like to knit. I like to make bags. I like to embroider. I do a little bit of beading here and there. I used to do a lot of punch needle embroidery, rug hooking. For a while, I was really into decorative painting. I've even tried book folding, which was actually kind of fun, but I just don't have a lot of time to do. But I love to do crafts and make stuff myself or other people. 
I'm willing to almost try anything, but I just love doing things with my hands. That sounds so busy. (laughs) (laughs) I am busy. That's great. Yes. I think that people should do more crafts. There was a period of time where I didn't do a lot of stitching, but I did a lot of knitting. And I had this harebrained idea that I would go into these big corporations like Google and I would come like one or two days a week and I would teach people how to knit because I felt like those people needed to have some kind of creative thing that they needed to do. And I could offer my services by going into these big corporations and getting these people off of their chairs and learning some new, I don't know, creative skill. I know that sounds kind of silly, but it was a thought at one time. That's a good thought. (laughs) You just have to find the willing participants. Yes, that's for sure. How about other hobbies? There's a couple other things that I like to do, but one hobby I would say that comes to mind, I used to really love doing genealogy research, family history. My mom is really into it, and I could go down a rabbit hole and be at the computer for hours. So I really would consider that a hobby. I also collect Pyrex mixing bowls, so that's sort of a hobby. It's sort of a newer hobby, I would say. I guess collecting, it is a hobby, but I do collect Pyrex mixing bowls. I'm not giving you mine. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, well, do you want to hear a story about the Pyrex mixing bowls? Yeah. It has some quilter's significance. I've had a set of mixing bowls that matched my grandmother's because I just loved her bowls and I wanted the same ones and I sought them out and I've had them for like 30 years. I bought them at an antique store. But I kind of was watching some videos, maybe it was on Instagram or TikTok, about people really into this Pyrex mixing bowl, or or just Pyrex bowls, these collectors have collected all these. And I was teaching a class up in Chico, and I was telling this story about how I have decided I'm going to start collecting these Pyrex mixing bowls. They're called the Cinderella ones. They have a little lip on each side and they come in different sizes, like a set of four. But I'm going to be very particular about this because I want to have certain colors only because you could go down another rabbit hole and buy every color under the sun and then, you know, it gets out of control. They have to be carefully curated collections. And I was telling one of my students about how my mom had the pink gooseberry Pyrex mixing bowls, the Cinderella, and she got rid of them years ago, which saddens me now. I think it saddens her now. And I was just telling her the story about how I would really love to have the pink bowls. So this was on one day of the class. And the next morning she comes in, she hands me this cardboard box that came from Amazon. And I'm like, what is this? She goes, well, this is for you. And I opened the box up and it was a pink Pyrex mixing bowl that belonged to her mother. And she gave it to me. And I was speechless. I nearly burst into tears. I couldn't believe it. 
that she was going to give me this bowl. And it proudly sits on a shelf. And this was Pam. This is my stitching friend and student, Pam. She's a left-handed stitcher just like me. But she gave this bowl to me. I cherish it. Oh, my goodness. Do I cherish that bowl? And she gifted it to me. It just gives me goosebumps thinking about it. Quilters are some of the nicest people. They are some of the nicest people you will ever meet, for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. The next question is, do your other crafts or hobbies show up in your quilting? And I'm trying to figure out how one of those mixing bowls can be in your quilt. I saw the question, and I just did not know how to answer it. I don't know how my other hobbies show up in my quilting, although embroidery right now is very big, and a lot of my quilts have hand embroidery in them, so there's a bit of a crossover. Mm -hmm. But I don't think genealogy and Pyrex mixing bowls will show up in my quilting. Who introduced you to quilting? My mother introduced me to quilting because she is a quilter. And years ago, they lived in Colorado where it was very cold. And my mom, I guess, met up with the quilt shops in their small town and she started quilting. And I just kind of got it from her, even though we lived in different states. I picked up quilting, I think, from her. I took lessons when we lived in Texas. But my mom is a very creative, artistic person. And she's done many things, but she's definitely a great quilter. Along with some other things that she's really good at. The way you worded that, do I understand that She took up quilting after you had left home? Yes. So my parents moved to Colorado right after I graduated high school. And so I stayed in Georgia for a while and they moved to Colorado and she started quilting after I'd left home. I started quilting just before my first daughter was born. I think I made my first quilt. I had a sewing machine and I tried to sew clothing and I was not good at it. I would have to say it was just not my thing, but I had a sewing machine and I decided I wanted to learn to quilt. And I think she put the bug in my ear. Beth, tell us about your favorite quilt. My favorite quilt at the moment, because I have several favorites, but... I'm going to refer to my favorite quilts that are hanging on the wall that I'm looking at right now. My favorite quilt is an applique, wool applique, actually, quilt that I had finished in 2020. It was started, I think, at the beginning of, you know, that pandemic thing that we all refer to these days. But it's a quilt called the Retro Farmhouse. It's by Fig Tree, and we started it as a group project. I used to teach at the Nimble Thimble the first Friday of every month, 
I taught a workshop where you could come and work on any project that you like. And every year I would pick a group project. I give them ideas. We would vote on it and we would pick one project and everybody made their own. I would help them work through the project. And it's usually a small quilt. And we would make that quilt for the year. And then the next year we would do something else. Well, that year we decided to do two because some people didn't want to do it. You know how people, you know, they all have their ideas about what they want. So we decided to do two. One of them was the retro farmhouse. The quilt is made with traditional setting blocks. They're Irish chain blocks, but the applique is done on cotton. So you'll have like an Essex linen background and the applique is wool. And so we made this quilt and then lockdown, we had to finish it on our own. But it is such a beautiful quilt and the wool applique is just stitched down. There isn't any fancy embroidery. It is beautiful and it's one of my favorite quilts. What is the color palette for that? Well, the background is maybe a charcoal gray Essex linen. And the setting blocks, the Irish chain blocks are white print, like tone on tone with some colors dotted throughout. But it's more white, I guess, white background cotton. And it has these different blocks, different colors, blue and red and green and peach colored. And they're kind of set on point. I think you would call it set on point. It doesn't have a traditional border, very simple. It's called a retro farmhouse, but it's really, to me, more of a modern-ish vibe to it. Oh, I'm looking at it right now. It's, it's a very happy quilt to me. It sounds nice and bright. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what tool are you so happy that you have? My most favorite tool is that rotary cutter. I don't know what we would have done without that rotary cutter. Because the invention of that really has changed so many things for quilters like me. I would not probably still be quilting if I had to use a pair of scissors to cut out blocks. So I would say that is my favorite tool. I use it for wool my cotton. It's just so universal. Interesting, because when I think of applique, I think of smaller cuts, and you're still able to do that with the rotary cutter? Well, not for the applique. Okay. For my basic traditional quilting, I would say my favorite tool is the rotary cutter. For wool applique, my favorite and most used tool would be a chenille needle. Okay. Yeah. I guess I have more than one favorite tool. Well, I made an assumption there because I knew you were into wool applique. Uh-huh. <laughs> so okay. that assumption got me in trouble. <laughs> okay. I'm a gadget person. I love tools and gadgets. And when I say gadgets, they're very useful gadgets. I like to have different things to try out when I'm doing my stitching and 
but I would say my most used tool for wool applique is the chenille needle because you use that to stitch your pieces down and to embroider. But I do like to try new things when it comes to tools. That's fun. And do you like each part of the quilting process equally or is there one step you like more than others? My favorite part of quilting, and this includes wool applique, is the starting. I love to start a new project. I wouldn't say I'm bad at finishing, but I love to sit down and plan out what I'm going to do, whether it's figuring out the pattern that I'm going to use, picking out the fabric including the wool fabric for the piece. I love to sit down and trace on freezer paper for my templates. It's sort of like an art project where you're in the planning stages and then you get to sit down and get your pencil out and you get to trace all your templates. I love doing that. Sometimes at night, if I'm too tired to stitch, I will sit down and just trace. I have plastic sleeves that I put the pieces in and I'll sit and trace and I'll cut things out. It's very meditative to me when I just don't have the energy to stitch something or I have to think about what I'm doing. So I think the the starting of the project is the most exciting for me. It's so much fun to hear what each person loves about quilting. So that's fun. Yeah. Some people love the finish. I do love to bind a quilt. When it comes to the binding part, that's another meditative thing too, is that once you've sewn that binding on the quilt and now you've got to finish it, having that needle and thread in your hand and stitching that quilt closed, the binding closed. Oh, It's a wonderful feeling. It is. Can you share your worst quilting experience? I will share with you the worst quilting experience. It's not for the faint at heart, if you're ready for it. So, you know that beautiful quilt that I have hanging on my wall that's my favorite quilt? That quilt almost wasn't. And so let me tell you, there was a lot of work going into that quilt. And there was a few things that I did not know when I was making that quilt. One was that after I put the whole quilt together, my setting, I guess the not really the the outside border, but the strips that go around the border of the quilt were wavy. I don't make wavy quilts. I learned the proper way to put borders on, but I had a wavy quilt. And all I could think of was the long arm quilter's gonna just, she's gonna be rolling her eyes at me. So the first thing that happened was it was wavy. What do I do? Well, I took part of the border off and I started shaving it down to try to make it flat. And it didn't help. And I was talking to my friends about it. And one of my friends had said, well, you really needed to starch that Essex linen before you sewed it together. 
And I'm like, what are you talking about? I guess you're supposed to starch the heck out of that SS linen so that it, you know, does not wave or whatever was going on with it. Apparently, I did not starch. It was rough. So after I re-put those pieces back together, I sent it off to the long arm quilter and I got a call from a friend who happened to be in the shop while the quilt was on the long arm. And she had said, Beth, one of your setting Irish chain blocks is backwards in the quilt. And I'm like, what? So I had a picture of the quilt. I pulled it up on my phone. I'm looking at it. And I'm like, I don't even see what you're talking about. She goes, look at the quilt. (laughs) And then the penny dropped. I had sewn one of the blocks completely wrong. And it's not something that you could just say was a design feature or anything special. It just would have ruined the quilt, in my opinion. So she took it off the long arm and sent it back to me. So I had to disassemble the quilt. Basically, I just started seam ripping until I got to the block that was wrong because it wasn't on the edge. Of course, it was sort of in the middle. So what I did was I undid the whole thing. I took it out in parts, peeled it back like a banana. I took the old block that I had messed up out. I redid the entire block. I put a whole new block in. Yeah, and I'm just shaking my head thinking this is just going to be hideous. And so I had to reassemble all the blocks again. And I sent it back to the quilter. And she quilted the quilt. And I got it back. And the quilting is absolutely beautiful. I laid it out to square it up because I was thinking it's going to have those wavy borders. And it was square within about an eighth of an inch. And I don't know how this happened, but it was flat. It hangs on the wall flat. But I did notice something very interesting. There were some safety pins strategically placed in a couple of areas on the quilt. Because I had forgotten to stitch all of the applique down in those areas. (laughs) So I know. So I had like probably ran out of thread and I buried the excess in the back and I forgotten that I had that area to stitch. So there was like three places there were safety pins where my quilter had kindly marked where I needed to go back and carefully applique those down. So I would have to say that is probably my worst quilting experience, but the quilt is so beautiful and turned out so nice that it is my favorite. I don't even know how that happened. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. It seems like you had one heart-stopping moment after another with that quilt. I did. I just never have had so much trouble putting something together. 
And for all the trouble that it had caused me, it turned out so beautiful. And it is in my sewing room. It hangs there. I just really love looking at it. And I'm so happy that it turned out as well as it did, considering all the trouble that I had. That is amazing. Why do you think you make quilts rather than spending your time doing something else? I just really like making things. I like doing things with my hands. I find that some of the best feelings that I get is when I'm sitting down, I have a needle and thread, whether I'm doing a cotton applique or a wool applique quilt. It's very relaxing to me. And life can be stressful at times for all of us. But I find that just sitting down, even if it's just watching a movie or just sitting quietly, or if I'm sitting at the airport on an airplane, I always have my stitching with me. The reason I do it is because I love the feeling of having that needle and thread running through my fingers. That's interesting. I don't think I've heard the feeling of running the thread through your fingers. That is a neat feeling, but yeah, to think about that is really nice. Who do you make your quilts for? I make quilts for my family. I make quilts sometimes to donate. I make quilts for myself. And Beth, what are you working on right now? That is a very good question. I have projects that I'm working on for my business. And I have projects that I work on for myself. So for myself, I am working on a cotton applique quilt called China Shop. And it was published in a magazine back in 2015. And I came across it. Somebody was giving a bunch of magazines away on one of those Facebook D-stash groups. She had these Australian magazines and she was just wanting to give them to somebody. So I got a hold of them. There's a quilt in there called China Shop. And it uses K-facet fabrics. And I think it was a collaboration between Kathy Dowdy, Kay Facet, Wendy Williams. There could be one other person, but I'm not really sure. But it's a very girly quilt. It's pink and green polka dot fabric background with all of these big vases made with Kay Facet fabrics. And you know, the bold prints and the flowers and there's quite a few blocks. I think there's like 37 of them and they're not small. So I've started that and I've been working my way through that quilt. I would call that a long-term project because it is so big. That's one that comes to mind that I'm working on now. I also have some wool applique quilts that I'm working on. I like doing holiday quilts something you can just put up for the holiday and then take back down. I do rotate my quilts around. I like to put them up and take them down and 
I have a pretty good system for that. But I would say my main cotton quilt would be the China shop. That sounds like a pretty big project. Not difficult, but it's going to be a big bed quilt. Describe your sewing area. My sewing room, where I actually have a sewing machine set up, it's painted in a really pretty blue. It's got really good lighting. My husband put in an extra window so I could get as much natural light as possible. I have a fireplace for the wintertime because it does get cold here in Northern California. He also hung some bird feeders outside the window, and I keep those bird feeders pretty full all the time because we have lots of birds, and I just love to watch the birds. I have an easy chair with an ottoman, and the ottoman is full to the brim with my knitting projects. And I have a sewing machine, some bookshelves. It's my creative space. And I get inspired when I'm in here. It's a really good feeling to have a room where you're inspired when you walk in. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a happy place. It is a happy place. Yes. Share a quilting tip. Okay. This is a big one. If I could tell any of my students, one of the most important things for quilting, even if you're quilting with wool or cotton, is pin, pin, pin. (laughs) So I know some people that don't use pins, but I am a big pinner, especially if you're piecing wool, you have to pin a lot. If you want those intersections and those seams to go together nicely, you have to pin. So that's my best quilting advice or tip that I could give somebody. I haven't worked with wool, but I would imagine that it moves a lot more so than the cotton. It does. It does have a little bit of movement and a little bit of stretch. And that's why it's really important that when you're sewing your blocks together, that you pin. I also seam rip if I have a seam or an intersection that doesn't go together nicely I will pick it apart and redo it I want it to look nice but it's the pinning part is pretty important I tell all my students Mm -hmm. well looking at your website you're into hand dyeing the wool can you tell us how you started to do that I am totally self-taught. It all started a a long time ago. Back when I took a class on wool applique at Sisters Quilt Show from a woman who was teaching a class. And I kind of got in late and there wasn't a lot of classes available. But I came across this wool applique. I didn't know much about it. And I tell this story at lectures too. It's kind of a funny story, but I took this class. It was a random class. And I go to the class and I have my cheap felt from Joanne's, whatever that was at the time. It's the kind of stuff the felt you use. And I go to this class so happy with my little stash. 
And the teacher took one look at my cheap felt and said, no, we don't use this and kind of tossed it aside. I had no idea the difference between felted wool that was hand dyed and craft felt. I had no idea until I took the class. But I took this class, I made the project, and I kind of fell in love with the process of stitching on wool because it's very forgiving. Back then, most of the patterns were very primitive. The colors of wool were dark. But when I got home, nobody sold it. You couldn't find it anywhere. Rug hookers used felted wool to make their rugs. There were a lot of rug hooking enthusiasts on the East Coast, but I didn't know really anybody on the West Coast that had wool. So I decided one day that I was going to learn to do this myself. So I bought a book. I still have the book. And I taught myself how to hand dye wool. It's not difficult, but that's kind of how I started dyeing wool was I started dyeing for myself. And then I started dyeing for some friends. And then I noticed that, well, I could do this as a business. And it kind of started from there. So it went from being a hobby to being a business. Yes. And when I first started, I would call it maybe a hobby business. It was not one that I was going to be able to support myself. So I did start the business, I think, in 2003 is when I got my resale license. So it'll be 20 years in August wow. that I will, I know. And so I decided, well, I'm going to have this little business. My husband helped me get a website going. And I started dyeing wool. And then I started going to shows. I started vending at quilt shows. And I did that for a while. And things were going great. I used to vend at Pacific International Quilt Show. I've done Road to California. But then I hit a burnout. I hit a wall. I was making things to sell patterns for my website and my booth. And I hit a wall. And when that happens, when you have burnout, you kind of just don't want to do anything. So I took a little hiatus. <laughs> I took like a two-year break, maybe even three years, but probably two years where I took a break and I was knitting a lot. I kind of did that for a while. But I love it so much. I found something that inspired me to bring me back into my wool dyeing and my business. And I kind of had a bit of a turnaround. You know, I had the break and then I had a turnaround. Is that when you renamed your company? Yes. Let's go back and share the first name of your company and how you decided to have that name and then share what you renamed it to. So when I first started my business, it was called a plaid wool. And the reason why, I don't know specifically that moment of, yes, we're going to name it this, but I really liked plaids and textures and all the primitive wools that were being used were plaids and textures. It just kind of came to me one day, a plaid wool. 
a plaid wool. So that was the name of my business for a really long time. And I did a lot of primitive dyeing, the darker colors. And once I kind of hit that wall of having to take a break, I rediscovered brighter color dyes that I could dye wool with that weren't the primitive. Because I kind of gotten away from primitive patterns. And I discovered a brighter palette, brighter colors, brighter dyes. There were companies doing these colors that were just spectacular. And it kind of revitalized my inspiration to do other things. So back in 2018, I renamed my company West Coast Wool. And that came about from me kind of rethinking my business and where I lived, where I was, um, where I was located, or, you know, it just kind of came about uh, calling it West Coast Wool. And if somebody goes to my website and they look at the hand-dyed wool colors, most of the colors that are named on the website are for different California-related things and towns and parks and just California-related colors, I would say. And that's kind of how things started to change, move forward. That new name really fits what you're doing. I think it does. It kind of tells people where I'm at, where to find me. I'm on the West Coast. Describe the process you go through to dye the wool. To dye wool, you need very little in the way of equipment. You need wool, of course. You need dye. You need a pot. You need a cooktop of some sort. You need heat. I use a six-burner old propane stovetop that my husband put into a cabinet for me. And basically, you're going to wet your wool. You're going to soak it for a while. You're going to mix your dye. It comes in a powder, and you're going to mix it with some boiling water. You're going to put the dye into the pot, and you're going to put the wool into the pot, and you're going to let it simmer. The more you stir, the less mottled it will be. If you really want a really mottled piece of wool, you would stir less. And you would keep it on the cooker or whatever you're using until almost all or all of the color has exhausted out of the water and into the wool. And then you have to use something to set the dye, whether that's vinegar or citric acid crystals. And there's a little bit of math to doing colors, mixing recipes. It's not difficult to do, but that's basically how you dye wool. And as you're dyeing the wool in the pot, and then you finish and you rinse it out and you throw it in the washing machine and dry it, it felts. It will shrink. So you can start with a piece of wool that's 60 inches wide and you'll lose 10 inches on the width. So it felts it. It makes the fibers really tight so that you can cut it and raw edge applique it to a background. 
that's the basic process. So is that time consuming too? Even though you said the steps are simple, but to wait for that to cook, I'll say in. Um, well, somewhat time consuming. If you're going to dye just one color, it would take you probably about an hour for that one piece. For me, I dye several pots at a time. I kind of rotate them. So as I'm prepping one set of pots, I've got a set of pots on the cooker. And then I rotate them off and they rest. So the pots will cool off. And then I'll go and rinse them, wash them, dry them. So I kind of have like a cycling thing that I do. I can usually spend an entire day just dyeing wool. It sounds like you get a lot more done than I had pictured in my mind, though. Oh, what, what did you picture in your mind? I pictured having to spend a whole day to just get one color. Oh, how about an hour? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so it does take about an hour. You have to remember some dyes exhaust onto the fabric a lot quicker. Some colors will dye up much faster than others. It just depends on the color or the formula that you're using. But I can dye quite a bit of wool in one day. It's backbreaking. Think of a wet sheep and you've got a big old pot of water that's simmering. And then you're going to put a big old piece of wool in there and you're going to have to stir it. And then you're going to have to let it cool, pick it up, dump it into the sink, and then you have to wring it out. There's a lot of muscle that you need, I guess. You've also been offering workshops. You've mentioned teaching at the quilt shops and so forth. Do you remember how it felt when... Someone signed up for your first wool applique workshop? Every time I teach a class, it is the best feeling in the world when you have a new group of stitchers and you're teaching them something brand new. It is the best feeling to teach somebody a new skill. It never gets old, ever. And I teach a wool workshop every first Friday of the month and then classes here and there. But when that student says, can you show me how to do this? Or can you show me how to do this stitch? It is the best feeling in the world to teach somebody something new. It's so fun to see the light go on when they realize how to do something. Yes. It feels good to them to master a skill, and it feels good to you that you're able to teach them that skill. Yeah. What else about your business would you like to share with us? So the last couple of years, I've started to do lectures and trunk shows at quilt fields. I'm still relatively new to it, but I've started doing that a little bit more, kind of working outside of my comfort zone. Publicly speaking in front of a crowd can be nerve-wracking. But So I've been doing that a little bit more. 
I actually have a TikTok channel in which I do very short, I call it less than a minute videos on how to do a stitch or a demo something. I started doing it to get over the fear of public speaking and putting myself out there. So even though it was for fun, there was a purpose for it. I also have a YouTube channel that I have tutorials for left-handed stitchers, also right-handed stitchers, but I am a left-handed stitcher. So you can go to my YouTube channel if you need a tutorial on different stitches. And you can find me on Facebook and Instagram, more so on Instagram, because that's way more fun. (laughs) Please list your website address and then from there, I'm sure we can find yes. all your other links. Plus, I will have okay. all your links on your episode page of A Quilter's Life. So my website is westcoastwool.com. My Instagram and Facebook page are the same. If you like to watch TikTok videos, if you go and search the number one creative Beth. So that's one creative Beth. You can find some of the less than a minute videos to watch also. Those sound fun. Well, thank you so much, Beth, for spending your time with me and sharing your story on A Quilter's Life. Paula, it was my pleasure. And I am so grateful that we got to meet. And I'm so glad Linda told me to get a hold of you. Me too. Bye-bye. Bye. You can find more stories on aquilterslife.com or subscribe on your favorite podcast player so each episode will be downloaded automatically. Also, I want to hear about you and your wonderful quilts. Please contact me, Paula Chamberlain, through the website to set up an interview. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.